Welcome back to Lexis Non Scripta. This is part two of my conversation with undisciplinary artist Isa Bunto. Please go back and listen to the first part of this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about your work, um, in particular, your thesis work at SAIC. I understand that you really look at how identity is shaped by uh, spatiality, nomadicism, and lines of flight, um, which is a phrase that you uh, borrow from the artist and philosopher Adrian Piper. Um, Would you mind sharing a little bit about that with us? Yeah, thank you so much for um, bringing me to that. Um, Yes, my work evolves around um, my understanding of how, you know, the spaces where I have grown up, the um, nomadicism in the fact that my father is a diplomat and we had to move. Um, And then that movement also continues as an adult where it's not just the literal flight but also the um, psychological lines of flight that I I mentioned earlier, how I wanted to figure out the English language. I wanted to be good at it. I wanted to cross my T's and dot my I's. But as I grew up and went to college and started making art more, and being at a, a school where, an art school where conceptual art was at the forefront with Baltasari and, you know, all these um, hotshot American artists that would, you know, spend time up north in Canada at this little art school. And that excitement was squashed out of me because I took art history and was told by many art history professors that, you know, my writing wasn't good. So I I think stepped away from writing, even though it was something I I loved so much. And um, then really did my best to figure out the academic um, language that, that was, I felt, I was not just challenged, but but told to figure out. And if I did, couldn't and didn't figure it out, I wouldn't be, you know, able to continue in some way, um, or respected in some way. So I think I went away, licked my wounds after. I wish I had a copy of the paper that was marked in red, the essay I wrote for one of my art history classes. A great professor. Um, but marked it up in red and <laughs> still remember it. I went home and I cried about it. The, the paper was covered in red ink and tear stains. Um, and, and I just did everything in my power to just try to improve my writing. I, I got so good at it that I was able to help my friends that were international students from different parts of the world um, write their essays for them. And while I did that to help them, I also took the time to show them how and why it needed to be written that way. 
um, I took that extra step. And this was in undergrad. And then I, you know, started taking care of um, my family, my children. I have three children. My daughter is 21, my son is 14, and the, the baby is seven. And each one of my children, I tried my best with my daughter to speak my um, language of my ancestors, um, Thai, to her. Lasted, you know, maybe a year on and off, English mixed in with Thai. My son, I tried a little bit longer, maybe a year and a half. The, my little um, son, I've spoken only Thai to him. And sadly, um, because I'm the only person that's speaking it, it's not really forming um, outwardly, I think. But I think internally, I think for my children, it's really important for me that I try to relay that sense of the corporal, like sense of the language, of the accents, the tones, the, the body of it, the wholeness of it. Mm -hmm. And so while they may not know it, they were hearing it. And that's important for me right now because I'm not in an environment where my children will be exposed to another language. Once again, we're in America. Uh, I live in Austin, Texas, where, um, you know, I when I came here, I, I thought for sure people would be bilingual and speak English and Spanish, come to find out um, that not really, they, they don't really do that. Um, and that it's not valued having this ability. So I'm in this environment where, all, again, English is the, the language of the colonizer and um, being other, um, in acting other, in trying to teach my children this has not always been easy. And so fast forwarding to um, my work, I created um, an installation for my thesis exhibition and we were then asked to present um, a, a thesis presentation and I had so many ideas and the one idea that kept coming back to me is the importance of my children in my work and my understanding of what is important to not just me but potentially important for them as they grow up into this world as they inherit what we leave behind um, and in wanting to create some legacy for my, my children I last minute decided, okay, because the night before I had written a letter to my children and I forced myself to do what comes natural, which is to write it in English. I forced myself to write it in Thai and I did. A little help from Google with a couple of spellings, but I managed to write an entire uh, letter to my children in Thai and I decided that morning, afternoon, as the presentation encroached, to go ahead and read that letter to um, present. And I was nervous, but excited. I read the letter um, after telling the audience that if they wanted to hear the English translation of it, I also had that prepared. I read my letter, was feeling good about it after um, I finished reading it. And my reading was met with silence. To me, that was a very telling moment that 
here I am bookending this experience of going to this art school where the first person that references um, a text to me talks about Derrida. Yet here I am in this thesis, thesis presentation struggling with sharing where I am and, and where I, I, you know, what I'm trying, I'm interested in exploring. And it reminds me of this quote by Derrida. I have but one language, yet that language is not mine. Let me read that again. I have but one language, yet that language is not mine. And I, I wonder, should I have read that letter in English? And I believe that I am right in thinking that I did not need to read that letter in English, even though my children themselves may not have understood it. To me, there's value in me having written that in the language out of a desire to recover a lost language for me, but potentially for my children. And again, going back to erasing my identity, our identities um, in order to appease what is expected of us. And I found myself in this uh, really rich environment of a graduate program at one of the best art schools and was surprised that this high context culture, right, is not necessarily recognized, even in a space where one would think that there would be many, many <laughs> people that would, would understand the, the complications and the complexity to, to that moment for me. And, um, I feel that that was important for me to create that moment of awkwardness because while other people felt awkward and I certainly felt awkward, um, that was not the first time and will not, will not be the last time that I feel awkward in using um, the language of my ancestors. I think that that was a courageous decision that you made to read your letter in Thai. And I think it was a very important moment to call your, the language of your ancestors into the room. And I also think that to, be, to have been met with silence within an academic institution really kind of says something about high, the higher education system in the United States. My background in higher education is primarily with international students. I was a program coordinator and have built programs for international students for a long time. And this is a uh, population that most universities really uh, courts. And of course, multiculturalism, diversity, it, it's, it's really part of the marketing of higher ed at this point. It really does make an interesting comment when the audience in higher education is presented with high context culture that they are not expecting. <laughs> they shun it, they shun it. Like they sit there in object horror and it happens and I'm going, wait, what do you mean? Yeah, you really, I didn't, you sort I of didn't, exposed um, I didn't lay out the red carpet for them. I didn't pave the way to make it accessible. Right, and it's really, it's almost like, I, as a whole, this is not a comment on your institution specifically, I think, this is something about all 
academic institutions and the way the system is, is that um, it wants to do diversity and multiculturalism and inclusion on its own terms only though, <laughs> which is not how it, it, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> it, it, it has to be open. Um, so I think that for you to choose to read your letter in Thai was a courageous and important act, Isa, because this is a conversation that needed to go further, really to come back to the structure versus desire. You pushed on the structure with your desire and gave it an occasion to expand and to grow, which is- I, I tried, I tried, <laughs> I tried. I and it was so, I was so waiting for like some comment or a question mm -hmm. about the language, you know, that I chose. Yeah. And there were questions about the installation itself, the work itself and me and, or then at the end of it all, um, one of the professors actually um, questioned my, um, uh, perhaps um, exploiting um, maybe the femininity in, in how they are perceiving my work in making uh, an object out of um, women. And that wasn't exactly my point, but that's what they took away. And I, fa I found that so interesting because there was no, there were no questions. Mm. It was just these statements and assumptions. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. It, it kind of makes me think that when people are making comments or offering criticism, it's, we are often learning more about the speaker than the work, right? They're telling you more about themselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let me share this. Um, I don't know um, if you have any more questions or um, thoughts that you want me to maybe speak to or share, um, but. I think, yes, well, this is really where I ask you if you have anything else you would like to present to us or share with us today. And, mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like you do. So I'm going to let you have the floor. Um, but I will also invite you to, um, once you share what you have, if you have other suggestions of writers or artists um, that you would like our listeners to explore, please name them as well. So yes, perfect. So um, earlier I referenced um, Jacques Derrida. Mm -hmm. um, I also referenced um, Deleuze and Qatari. Uh, they're like a pair, they write together. Um, kind of like Fred Moulton, uh, his work as well. The director of SIC's Low Res, Greg Bordovitz. They do a lot of collaborative work. Um, another text that I highly would recommend would be Aristotle on poetry and style. And this last one, I'm gonna save the best for last. Um, so my experience at my um, graduate school, the Art Institute of Chicago, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, I was first met with the referencer um, monolingualism of the other or processes of origin by Derrida, by um, a fellow um, low residency student that is a year ahead of me. And this last reference that I want to share was shared with me by my brother and mentor, 
Nugent Smith, I reached out to him my last year. He was one of the first low residency um, graduates. And he shared this quote with me and it stayed with me throughout my, my the last year as I was writing my thesis, I was preparing the installation as I was thinking about my presentation. And I, I believe that this is part of the reason that I decided to read that letter in Thai in a language that's not even my first language, right? Um, that I had to struggle, I had to force myself to write it so that it could be written into history. So here is um, Jean-Paul Sartre, preface to Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. The text is Franz Fanon, Wretched of the Earth, preface by Sartre, philosopher, writer. Not so very long ago, the Earth numbered 2,000 million inhabitants, 500 million men, and 1,500 million natives. The former had the word, the others had the use of it. Between the two, they were like hired kinglets, overlords, and a bourgeoisie, sham from beginning to end, which served as go-betweens. In the colonies, the truth stood naked, but the citizens of the mother country preferred it with clothes on. The native had to love them, something in the way mothers are loved. The European elite undertook to manufacture a native elite. They picked out promising adolescents. They branded them as with a red hot iron with the principles of Western culture. They stuffed their mouths full with high sounding phrases, grand glutinous words that stuck to the teeth. After a short stay in the mother country, they were sent home whitewashed. These walking lies had nothing left to say to their brothers. They only echoed from Paris, from London, from Amsterdam, we would utter the words, Parthenon, brotherhood, and somewhere in Africa or Asia, lips would open, Tenon, the hood. It was the golden age. It came to an end, the mouths opened by themselves, the yellow and black voices still spoke of our humanism, but only to reproach us with our inhumanity. We listened without displeasure to these polite statements of resentment. At first, with proud amazement, what? They are able to talk by themselves? Just look at what we have made of them. We did not doubt, but that they would accept our ideals since they accused us of not being faithful to them. Then indeed, Europe could believe in her mission. She had Hellenized the Asians. She had created a new breed, the Greco-Latin Negroes. We might add quite between ourselves as men of the world, after all, let them ball their heads off. It relieves their feelings. Dogs that don't bark, don't bite. Please read this book. Yes. <laughs> Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. This is extraordinary. Thank you, Isa. That was, was so powerful. I'm going to include all of these titles um, in the description of this podcast so that, yes, everybody go read this book. Oh my gosh. Thank you. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me um, uh, share space and time with you. It means a great deal to me that finally somebody <laughs> cares to ask me a few questions about what is going on inside my head. Oh, I, well, I am so honored to have you here. I really love to um, hear your thoughts 
And when you share your stories and your experiences, I find it so inspiring um, how you think, how you put your ideas together and what you are aiming to bring into the world. So if you also wouldn't mind sharing um, if you have a way for people to get in touch with you. Um. Thank you so much, Kristen. Um, first of all, in gratitude again for um, uh, inviting me to um, share time and um, trying in trying to understand some of these complications. It means a, a lot to me. I am currently working on a website. Okay. And um, once I have that website up and running, I will absolutely share. Perfect. For now, if somebody wants to get in touch with me, they could email me. Okay. My email is isabunto, one word, I-S-A-B-O-O-N-T-O, at hotmail.com. And, um, or they're welcome to even call or text me or find me on Facebook. I don't do social media, once again, um, out of a need to protect myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that feeling, that sense that I'm always needing protection permeates what I do as an artist, uh, my practice of um, research, uh, reading, writing, and dissemination of, you know, what I've come, come to understand or continue to not understand and continue to try to understand. Uh, is 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 really important and and very much at the root of um, my rhizomatic I think thinking um, and again the multiplicity of the moment for me that we're not tied to any one monolithic and or even binary um, thinking. So thank you, Kristen, so much. Thank you, Isa. Thanks for tuning in to the second half of this conversation with Isa Bunto. All of the titles that Isa mentioned in this conversation can be found in our affiliate bookshop link. You can follow us on Instagram at Lexis Nonscripta to find out when the next episode drops. And special thanks to Jayla Sol for the intro beats. See you next time.